Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Friday, May 16th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. I also want to let you know that today's podcast is sponsored by the Union of Concerned Scientists, who are authors of the new book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. And this book is written by two nuclear power experts as well as an award-winning journalist. And it's a definitive scientific retelling of what happened at Fukushima and an urgent reminder that U.S. nuclear power isn't as safe as it could and should be. So learn more about the book that the Los Angeles Times is calling indispensable at the following URL, ucsusa.org slash inquiring minds. So this week we have a kind of special show, and to explain why, let me begin by saying that perhaps one of the most important things that happened this week with respect to science and how we think of it occurred on the new HBO show Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. And this segment, it's actually on YouTube, has been seen by two million people just there, as well as the large number of people who saw it on HBO. And Indre, I know you've seen it, right? You've already... Yeah, it's like a nerdgasm. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That is exactly what it is. I mean, I feel like they said in four minutes something I've been saying for 10 years with like tens or hundreds of thousands of words. And what what they said was there's no debate over global warming. So to have these balanced one-on-one TV debates is just preposterous. Uh, and the way they did that was they actually had Bill Nye on. A, it looked like he was about to debate a skeptic like he so often does. But then something else happened. Let's listen to it. Good evening. Joining me tonight, a climate change denier and naturally Bill Nye science guy. <laughs> Humans are causing climate change, no wait, question. Wait, 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 wait. Before we begin, on, in the interest of mathematical balance, I'm going to bring out two people who agree with you, climate skeptic, and Bill Nye, I'm also going to bring out 96 other scientists. Uh, it's a little unwieldy, but this is the only way you can actually have a representative discussion. So, to put it bluntly, this was profoundly awesome. It's just one of those moments where entertainment tells a deep truth about the ridiculous way in which we carry on talking about certain issues. And yes, I'm talking to you, CNN. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's time to start mocking <laughs> this a little bit Hallelujah. and to make it funny, you know, because it's getting a little ridiculous. And so here's the thing. It turns out that the very week that John Oliver went and said what we've all been dying to say for like an eon, the guy who sits across from me at the Mother Jones office in D.C., our entertainment reporter, Aswin Subsang, or as we call him, Swin, actually had an interview scheduled with none other than John Oliver. So I was like, Swin, 
you really got to record this. Ask him whatever you want, but just ask about the Bill Nye segment and ask about climate change. And he did. And it was such a good, entertaining interview, the whole interview, not just the climate part, that we decided to make it our featured interview for the week. So before we go any further, I actually have Swin here, and let me welcome him to the show. Aswin Supsang, welcome to Inquiring Minds as a guest host. Thanks for having me on. This is my first time, and it's, uh, it's good stuff, man. Chris and I have no qualms poaching good interviews, as you can see. <laughs> so no, we are shameless. <laughs> Poach away. So thank you very much for doing this. Let's hear a clip from the interview. Swin, can you set it up? Sure thing. Uh, as you guys played earlier, John Oliver and his crew sort of hosted a quote-unquote debate on a show about climate science in terms of what a debate would look like if it were fair. <laughs> uh, so I just asked him, how did this come about? How did you guys get Bill Nye on the show? Whose idea was it? And if he's passionate about climate science and what he has planned for the future. So let's hear that. More just as a comedian, like I'm not an activist, but just as a comedian, some of how it's talked about is incredibly funny to me. Uh, there is the stridency and the intense comfort with <laughs> a lack of scientific information is, is ludicrous. No, it's objectively ludicrous. So, yeah, I think I'm attracted to going wherever the biggest hypocrisy is and there feels like there's some good mining to be done regarding environmental issues. I think it's great that John Oliver is tackling this particular issue. And I do wonder why it took everybody so long or comedians so long to just see how funny it is, how ludicrous this whole situation is. And so, you know, I, I can't wait to hear more from him. Yeah, and it sounds like we're going to. Well, the thing I really liked about it was that, as John Oliver told me, and as he'll tell everybody who interviews him, his show is a comedy show, it's a comedy show, it's a comedy show. And they don't claim to be journalists, they don't claim to be pundits or political commentators, but there is a sense of outrage that drives a lot of the comedy that he's done in the past, and political satire he's done in the past, and of course the show he now has on HBO, that really just makes it very powerful. And the fact that he frames the climate debate in a way that it's as if there were historians debating if the Titanic actually sunk. <laughs> yeah. it, it's great. It, uh -huh. It's just he puts it in a blunt way that I'm not sure is going to win over any show. We call them climate skeptics, climate deniers. But it's very nice just to hear it the way it should be heard, I guess. And it's it's very nice to have, I mean, like, first we had Jon Stewart, who was really good on science, then some, like, you know, they just added water and he split into two, and then there was Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert, and they're very good on science, and then you added water again, they split into three, and now there's John Oliver, who's very good on science. I just hope it keeps happening, you know? But And I don't think necessarily that it, it will turn off the, the skeptics because satire has long been used to change people's minds and to change the, you know, political climate in a lot of different countries. And so, you know, especially in the UK, I think it's, it's, it's often used there as, for exactly that purpose. So I actually have hope that he will turn some people around. Maybe so. Right. He, he'd be the last to admit it if he did, though. <laughs> uh, I think his, his only sin here is not giving himself and his team enough credit, but... Once you do that, you have to take responsibility for being a journalist or a political player or a pundit. And what comedian wants to do that? Right. Yeah. Too much responsibility because the journalists carry the responsibility so well as it is right now. Oh, we do. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Awful. So, um, so we're going to hear that whole interview in a little bit. Um, but first, Swin, since you're our guest host today, we want to let you do the honors in terms of leading our weekly discussion of what's happening in science right now. And I mean, you come at this from an entertainment perspective. Um, but what's on your mind? Well, 
What I've noticed recently, and John Oliver is a good example of this, that there's sort of this emerging new uh, pop culture coalition that is pro-science, pro-climate science. And in that, you see heavy hitters like, of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye. Bill Nye, who seems like he's on cable news almost like every week, debating some guy who's spewing some idiocy about climate Mm. change or global warming or whatever you want to call it. And I think it's fair to lump people like Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, and, of course, John Oliver into this because there are all these guys who are ri- they they have sort of in a way or at least are on the path to making this sort of awareness and this no bullshit approach to climate science and the unfortunate political debate around uh global warming uh into something that's not just digestible but cool and i'm not sure if they're there yet but it's certainly more appealing on a pop cultural level than it was i don't know 5 10 years ago yeah there's something in the air but I also think we're, we're, we're coming into a time in our culture when we're glorifying nerdery, right? That's becoming hip again. So I think in some ways this might be a reaction to that trend. Yes, I definitely buy that. And also on a political level, I mean, the, this, the Obama administration has certainly embraced this wholesale. Oh, yeah, it doesn't hurt. I mean, yeah, everybody is starting to nerd really hard. And if Hollywood are our leaders, that's fine. You know, I mean, if it, it, some of the leadership is not wholly from the bottom up from the scientific community it's sort of from the you know icons of pop culture but hey that's fine um you know i think that scientists have kind of done their part too but i think that really when you have these celebrities doing it it just it just really wallops the impact so getting back to nerdery i want to talk about one of my favorite topics which is the hippocampus oh yes (laughs) this is the part of your brain that is responsible for laying down new long-term memories so it's the reason that you can remember your last birthday party or not depending on what you did to your brain uh, during that particular um, time but a new study has just come out in science and it's actually by two torontonians uh fellow torontonians i also grew up in toronto from the hospital for sick kids sheena jocelyn and paul franklin uh, are two of the authors on the paper and they're married and they have a toddler and they were wondering why it was that their toddler seems to have trouble you know remembering the where and the when of things you know that have happened so you know, we've long known that there's such a thing called infantile amnesia, that it seems like we pretty much forget everything that happened to us, at least explicitly, sort of consciously, on, under the age of three, which, you know, is a boon to new parents like me who like make mistakes all the time and just hope our child is going to forget all the stupid things we did early on. But in any case, they do forget it. And so people for a long time have thought, well, this is because, you know, the hippocampus is coming online later, that we're learning to form new long-term memories later in, in childhood, and that's why we don't remember our early childhood. But there really hasn't been any proof for this idea. And, you know, Freud had his own theory about why this was the case. But now this new study suggests that actually what's happening in the hippocampus around the time that children start forgetting their their infancy, is that new neurons are growing at a higher rate. So the hippocampus is one of only two parts of the brain that actually grow new neurons throughout adulthood. Um, the other part is the olfactory bulb, which is, you know, our sense of smell. And you want new neurons there because if you screw it up by smelling something awful, you want to be able to regenerate it. But anyway, the only other place is the hippocampus where these new neurons grow. And it turns out that they did a study with mice and uh, essentially they used the fear conditioning paradigm. So they'd put a mouse in a particular context, like a room with striped walls, for example, and they'd shock him. And then the mouse, when put into that context, would learn to fear the striped walls because he knew that, you know, presumably there was a shock coming. Well, 
little baby mice tend to forget that they should uh, fear the striped walls. And so this, uh, you know, infantile amnesia in mice. And it turns out that when they ramped up neurogenesis in these mice, they actually saw more forgetting. Uh, and when they ramped it down, they actually saw less forgetting. And so you might think, well, less forgetting is always good, right? But in fact, it's not always good. In fact, it's very adaptive to forget things that we don't need to know. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's debatable as to whether or not a fear, uh, a conditioned response should be forgotten, unless, of course, you have PTSD, in which case it's, you know, the fear conditioning gone awry, essentially. But in any case, it's really an interesting new take on why infantile amnesia happens. And it seems to be because at that at the time that the child starts to grow up a little bit, they have this ramping up of new neurons in their hippocampus. This is very, very cool. And as someone who gets accused of forgetting uh, sometimes in his personal life, can I now say, well, I was just busy growing new brain cells, like let me off the hook. You can say whatever you want, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Or does that mean that I'm being infantile? In which case... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, not at all. Well, not what about all. the Freud thing? I mean, what about, I mean, I know we don't take Freud as being science anymore, but what about the idea that there's some, there are, you know, subconscious things that are being laid down as well? And so you may, in some sense, quote, remember, but not consciously things, or is that not going to happen when you're young? Sure. No, I mean, there, there's no doubt that the vast majority of the computations that our brains do are actually under the radar of our consciousness, right? So the vast majority of things that, that, that decisions that we make are really based on unconscious processes. Um, and so, of course, we don't know the extent to which what we learn in childhood is going to sort of be reflected in our behavior in an unconscious way. Uh, but in particular, this type of memory is one for conscious conscious events, which is something that is very important to humans, right? It's in some ways what sort of allows us to have this rapid one trial learning, right? Um, you know, you, if I all of a sudden corrected you and said, John Oliver's from Australia, not from the UK, <laughs> um, it would only take you maybe one time and, and forever you would have, you have erroneously, of course, changed that uh, notion. And so that's something that's very special to humans. Um, although it seems like some of our other animal friends um, are very good at, at, at similar things. Like, for example, you know, chickadees are great at caching food in, you know, 30,000 different locations, etc. Chickadees just are generally awesome, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. so when you want you to weigh no in on idea. the brain or should we go, go on to the interview? I'm an entertainment reporter, man. This is way above my intellectual <laughs> pay grade. Yeah, okay. I, I barely remember what I did 15 minutes ago. I'm not the best one to comment on memory at the moment. <laughs> okay. So before we move on, um, there are a couple of parts of the interview where setting the stage, if you haven't seen uh, John Oliver's show yet, uh, a little context might help you because they talk about specific segments that have aired. Um, and one of the most hilarious parts of the interview is where Swin asks Oliver about a fake Mitch McConnell attack ad that aired on his show. Um, so before we hear from Oliver, Swin, maybe set us up with a little bit of uh, the background we need. Oh, uh, dear God. Um, uh, this is not safe for work. So if you have Yeah, any, well, if, it has if, to be said because it's going to come sure, up on the interview sure, anyway. Sure. If there are any children uh, listening to Inquiring Minds right now, I just yeah. put earmuffs on, I guess. Anyway, um, in the most recent episode of uh, Last Week Tonight, they ran a segment about uh, the flood of money and outside spending that's gone into elections in the post-Citizens United uh, universe and pointed to ads made against Mitch McConnell and against his challenger, Alison Lundgren Grimes, in the Kentucky Senate race. And Oliver makes the point that the only way these ads could get worse if if is if they were shown on cable TV, where 
content does not have to abide by network standards. So right, HBO, be- Game of Thrones, we see lots and lots of nudity. Nudity, gore, yeah. what gore, have you. Yeah, brutal, brutal killing, lots of nudity. So in the fake anti-McConnell ad, the narrator starts out by saying uh, something to the effect of, for too long, Congress has been controlled by old, wrinkled, white dicks. And no dick is... <laughs> older, whiter, or wrinklier than Mitch McConnell's. Instead of showing Mitch McConnell's face, they have this real white, yes, old... they show it. ...gray, repeatedly. wrinkled penis that's yes. shown repeatedly. Yes. Like, like, they use... Yeah. They, they used a model. They had to audition people for this So you penis. just had to ask about this. <laughs> yes. So, and just they flash it repeatedly on screen to get you to associate with Mitch McConnell. And it's really funny, but you can't unsee it. Yes. No, I couldn't. And so I had, I had to, I had to ask him about yep. this, and he had some funny stuff yeah. to say. You're right up there with the fear conditioning. I think you're a better scientist than you think you are. I mean, it seems like it would be a pretty effective fear conditioning stimulus to see, you know, the old man's penis. When <laughs> yes. w- when I recover emotionally and psychologically, <laughs> yeah. and physically from uh, the experience, I'll let you know. They actually have <laughs> in the clip. I might say they flash it repeatedly, but the last flash is a super fast one at the end. That's that's a. Uh, an homage, so to speak, to subliminal advertising, which, if I understand correctly, does work. Where the um, uh, narrator just says, Mitch McConnell. Yeah, and it flashes really fast. <laughs> um, you know, so I don't know if we want to comment on on whether subliminal advertising works or not, but they, they make a joke about that, a subtle joke at the end of this ad. Yeah, that's a whole other show. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, well, you know, um, so by, so... Obviously, people can go online or go on HBO and watch these things themselves, but is there any other context that we uh, need to have going in? Yes. In case uh, people haven't seen the first three episodes of uh, John John Oliver's new show, there are a few things we talked about uh, that I should provide some context uh, for. First, there's – well, we already talked about the McConnell ad. Uh, We also talked about how in the pilot episode, uh, they had a long, really funny and actually – quite informative segment on the uh, major elections going on in India. Which right we now. mostly pay no attention right. to. And that, like, as much as it was about India and how important this election really is, um, it's about how American media has really dropped the ball in covering it. And yeah, stuff that happens abroad doesn't matter to so much of our media. Right. It's ridiculous. And I mean, it. Yeah. well, some of it does, but I guess for some reason this isn't as sexy as, say... Putin annexing Crimea. And uh, something else that we talked about that John Oliver and his team covered in a subsequent episode was how the Sultan of Brunei, you know, recently imposed Sharia law. And uh, there's been very little, if any, I I think none, of a response from the Obama administration on this. And again, American media hasn't been doing a terrific job covering it. And uh, they point out during the segment that the team at last week tonight actually called the state department to ask if there was a comment about Sharia law in Brunei and the state department explicitly told them, no, we, we have no comment. Uh, so I pointed out to him that that is actually the work of a journalist. I didn't read or hear anybody else do that in American media, simply calling the state department and being like, do you have a comment on like the condition now, the horrid conditions of gay rights in Brunei. Well, there's a there's a commonality between um, with them covering foreign affairs and them actually covering science better than the mainstream media, because when science coverage got cut, the other thing that got cut was foreign affairs bureaus for all the newspapers. Like, what what do we not need? Because we're not making enough money on it. Oh, all the substantive things like right. science and foreign affairs. And so now we get the comedians 
who claim not to be journalists actually covering it. Right. And even though yeah. they're absolutely not journalists, they definitely do their legwork. They yeah. have a journalistic fact checker on staff. And also they consult with journalists. And the last thing you should know is that uh, for the first episode of Last Week Tonight, John Oliver and company landed the exclusive first interview with Keith Alexander in his uh, post-NSA life. Uh, Keith Alexander used to be the director of the National Security Agency, and now obviously he's not. So the first interview he has once he's out of government is with this HBO comedy show. So That's so it was, slightly newsy. It, it was a really good get for <laughs> yeah. Oliver and everybody else yeah. working there. And I recommend people watch it online. It's a really funny, uh, comically confrontational interview. And I emphasize comically uh-huh. because he's, <laughs> you know, he's a satirist. He's, he's not there to tear the guy apart. But but also is confrontational. Again, just watch it. it it's It's pretty brilliant. Got it. Okay, so that's good to know, too. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Swin's interview with John Oliver. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Union of Concerned Scientists, authors of the new book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. It's written by two nuclear power experts and an award-winning journalist, and it's a definitive scientific retelling of what happened at Fukushima. It's also an urgent reminder that U.S. nuclear power isn't as safe as it could or should be. Learn more about the book the Los Angeles Times is calling indispensable at ucsusa.org slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. John Oliver, thanks for joining us. You are more than welcome. I'm not sure if you saw this, but I think it was a blogger at Mediaite called your new program uh, the Al Jazeera America of late night cable TV or late night comedy. That's true. Yeah, yeah. The Al Jazeera America of late night comedy. Yes. Yeah. That, I, seem, that is, I mean, that is definitely an attractive sounding sequence of words. I'm pretty sure that is meaningless. <laughs> I, I think the thing that inspired that was in the pilot episode, you guys had that uh, long segment on Indian elections, which, as you yeah. guys pointed out correctly, was not something American media was doing a good job in covering. And in a subsequent episode, you guys actually did some reporting on Brunei by calling the State Department. <laughs> we, yeah, that is some low-scale reporting, though. That is, that is only one step above a prank phone call. Right. That is, that is <laughs> literally a single phone call to say, hold on, is there any statement on this at all? And having them say, no, who's this? Right. And that's the weird thing. That's 70% of what I do as a journalist. And (laughs) you'd be incredible how easy our job is and how few people do it correctly. (laughs) But uh, so going in that vein, stuff like that, like the international bent and actually pursuing what you guys think are quote unquote real stories. What kind of stories do you usually go to when you're forming each individual episode and what kind of commentary do you usually go for? Is there an international bent to it intentionally? Well, uh, well I mean, it's a little hard to say because we haven't really done anything yet. We've only done three episodes, so it's hard to, it's hard to extrapolate from those three anything resembling a pattern. Um, but yeah, so we did India. If I'm thinking back now, we did yeah, we did India the first show, and the main the main idea behind that was that you know it is even on a curiosity level, you would think people would be interested. It was you know if you were, you don't have to be interested in India, you just need to be interested in the concept of democracy to perhaps pursue a passing interest in the single biggest example of democracy in human history. Uh, so. Yeah, there was the, the 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 seed 
underneath that whole uh, act of jokes was really that if this isn't interesting, nothing is interesting. And the lack of reporting on it just seemed crazy considering how much interesting and funny and you know, hugely consequential things were happening in that. And then in our second show, oh, and then what else did we do that week? Oh, oh then we did something on the Supreme Court decision of POM, wonderful versus Coca-Cola, with, with stuff about food labeling, which is so, there is so much comedy in how ridiculous those laws are and how pathetically they've been enforced. Mm-hmm. And the, then, the characterizing uh, flavor. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, and the fact that actually well, there was a whole section that we ended up cutting out because we didn't have time about the fact that the words pure and natural, I believe, have no legal definition right. <laughs> in in regards to food labeling. Um, so yes, the idea that a heroin dealer has a greater standard <laughs> to hold themselves to than uh, most uh, food manufacturers in America. And then the second week, we oh, second week we did the death penalty. Right. Which was, yeah, that was, look, I will acknowledge there was, a, there was a slightly stupid thing to do in a second show on air. It's just that it had, that did feel like the biggest thing of that week. The Oklahoma yeah. botched execution oh, threw sure. up so many interesting things to me that I thought it was worth trying, at least. And how much of the program itself, but also something like the death penalty segment yeah. uh, comes from a place of not just comedy, but m- outrage for you, whether it's political or moral outrage. Because certainly when I watch certain clips, such as the death penalty clip, I mean, obviously the comedy comes first, but there was yeah. a message you were pounding away at, which was as a society is the power of imposing death by the state, something that we want. In civil yeah, society, yeah, which is right, but that was yeah. So that was triggered by yeah. The, it's always com- always comedy, you know. It's a comedy show, so but you know sometimes you can find comedy in extremely dark things or in you know big juxtapositions are inherently comic, whatever those juxtapositions are. And so that headline again, if I remember rightly, was kind of triggered through the president saying maybe we need to ask ourselves as a society some difficult questions. So you think okay. Let's do that then. Let's escalate the difficulty of these questions to a point that there is no defined answer at the end of. That you just have to, you you know, you each have to come to a personal conclusion with the most difficult question imaginable. Mm-hmm. And um, there were enough logical juxtapositions in that that I felt there were enough. There, it, there were there. It, I thought we could make it inherently comic enough along the way, even though that whole time you're basically tightrope walking along a third rail. Right, right. And speaking of uh, third rails and making something comic that perhaps is only so in a dark sense, uh, <laughs> tell me, can you tell me a little bit about how you and your team landed the Keith Alexander interview? And like, what were the terms of the interview? And how did such a high profile exclusive come about on your pilot? Uh, that is a good question. I think we called him. I think <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I honestly think that's it. I mean, there were no terms. There oh, right, no... because he's not working for the NSA anymore. Right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think potentially that there, there might have been a more, in a journalistic sense, more back and forth, but he he was gone. So he's free. You know, you can just call him now. 
You can just call it. You can just call him, and he'll answer. Uh, did Did you guys do any prep before you sat down together? Did you have a uh, sit down before you guys had the interview? No, 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 no. He just uh, uh, no. He spoke to a producer on the show. I think I spoke to him for like three minutes when he was driving somewhere on the phone, just to say yes, I would love to inter- interview you if you'd be interested in that. And he said, yeah, I would like to do that, and that was it. Was he a good sport off camera? He was a good sport. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he was. You know, we. I don't think he's. He's not a stupid man. I think he knows that we probably come to that argument from two different places. But um, no, he was. He was. You know, it was gracious of him to even sit down in the first place. And I, I think he left feeling that he'd had his say. I, you know, it, he. I think he seemed happy. That's good. That's good, and yep. as as long as we're talking about specific segments of specific episodes, um, I have to ask about the Mitch McConnell, Alison Lundgren Grimes. <laughs> yeah, I I think you know where I'm going with this. Can yep. you can you talk a li- <laughs> How did whose idea was it, if you recall, and whose penis did you use? Okay, those are two excellent questions. The first one, I'm not sure, and it might help to you know dis. Collective responsibility. I don't want. I don't want to go with a kind of moral "I am Spartacus" moment, right. but uh, <laughs> I think plausible deniability might be useful at that point. Uh-huh. The second is a much more interesting question, and that is that, of course, you do need to cast a penis, and to do that, you have to be presented with a selection of peni. I don't know if that's the <laughs> collective term. <laughs> And so then what you're looking for, it's amazing when you look at them, then you start judging them for the purpose because you want something that, that is funny but not sad because, you know, a sad penis does not help, does not help the comedy. Right. It, you know, it makes you think about the person the penis is attached to. Right. And so really you just want a representative old man's penis. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not sure that sentence for starters has ever said out loud before. What you really want is a representative old man's penis. Uh, but yeah, we we got to one that we liked, and uh, you know the uh, the owner of that penis was uh, uh, generous enough to uh, to model it for us. And, how um, did how did you get to one you like? Like, what is the process of getting penis? Going through, we went through photos. It, it was basically. The uh, penis version of a headshot. Uh-huh. So this was yeah. like, like models? Or models, basically. And you go through and say, this one's good, this one's good. Let's get down to a short list. Okay, it's between these three. Um, I like this one. <laughs> and then what you do is you make a decision. <laughs> you walk out of a room and you stare out the window and question what the fuck you're doing with your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically how it goes. So I'm assuming you weren't in the room when they did when they shot it. <laughs> I actually wasn't because we were having to write, so I was not in the room. Oh yeah, so, yeah. yeah apparently, that's, apparently that's the man was he was yeah. very happy. So yeah, I was not in the uh, in the studio when they shot it. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That would make sense. And yeah, I just came back, and our editor she had to uh, uh, she had to live with that footage for uh, a few days, but she did a fantastic job. Has she recovered? Psychologically, she, yeah, she's yeah, she was yeah, she was very good. Yeah, she's called Corey, and she did uh, she actually edited both of the uh, commercials, and yeah, she did an amazing job. But 
I think the other commercial was, uh, uh, you know, basically a, a chainsaw massacre in a mine uh, involving a kitten. And uh, I think she found that slightly less alarming to cut together than a sequence of uh, beautiful tracking shots of an old man's junk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, and about the Bill Nye segment that uh, aired. Yeah. Can you tell me how that came together and how long did it take to put it together? Whose idea was it? And like, what were the nuts and bolts of getting all that, these people? Well, that was just that, you know, because the, the start, so the start of the week, the White House were clearly wanting to reframe the climate discussion with that new report. And so that felt, you know, we wanted to, thought we want to do something on this. And we, and I think we'll probably end up doing some other more detailed segments on it down the line. But for this, we just wanted to, just really play with that idea that the very fact the climate debate is framed as a debate at all is problematic. Uh, so we just had this idea when we were talking it through, oh, well, how about having like 97 scientists in a room talking about it because that would look unwieldy and ridiculous. Uh, and then we found out late Saturday night so we taped Sunday, early Sunday evening, late Saturday night that Bill Nye was actually in New York. So I think we called him Sunday morning. And so the the Bill Nye elements came basically a few hours before we shot. Oh, wow. Yeah. But that elevated the whole thing because uh, then it made it feel like it had at least one foot in the real world. So, yeah, I was yeah hugely grateful to him. Uh for doing that because it made a big difference having him there. Right. And I, I mean, it. I'm surprised it came together just in a few hours before you shot it, because it sounds like something that will have been planned far in advance because you have to get the footage together of him appearing on all these different cable news shows. No, we did. No, no, no. We did that on the day. So, yeah, we did that on the day. Um, we you know we'd booked. We'd looked into like, you know, the fire uh, regulations for having a uh, hundred people storm a stage. So we'd kind of, we'd done that. We'd looked into that for a, a, two, a couple of days before when we came up with the idea and wanted to do it. But the Bill Nye, I mean, Bill Nye never even got to rehearse it. He couldn't even be there at rehearsal. So, uh, yeah, it all, it all came together pretty fast. And everybody else, they were extras or they were crew members just in science row? Yeah, extras. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. And this so-called uh, debate over climate science, global warming, <laughs> yeah. and whatever we want to call it, uh, yeah. is it extra frustrating from your perspective because you hail from a country where the conservative party there is not debating this issue? There, there may be certain debates over what to do over it, but generally speaking, un- unless I'm misreading politics in the uk like david cameron is not a climate denier he's not a climate denier no it's a different kind of frustration with him it is um yeah he's not a climate denier uh but yeah i don't know if it's particularly more i mean i've lived here for nearly a decade now so i'm kind of my head is pretty immersed in the american conversation right over things. Yeah. uh so yeah no i don't think it's any more frustrating for me as a British person to see the debate unfold like that, as it is just me as a human being. Right. And as a yeah. human being is 
uh, climate change and climate science. Is that an issue you're particularly passionate about? Because you said you, uh, you and your team are planning on uh, doing more in-depth stuff on this in the near future. Well, just because there's but more just as a comedian. Like, I'm not an activist, but just as a comedian, some of how it's talked about is incredibly funny to me. Uh, there is the stridency and the intense comfort with a lack of scientific information is is ludicrous. No, it's objectively ludicrous. So, yeah, I think I'm attracted to going wherever the biggest hypocrisy is. And there feels like there's some good mining to be done regarding environmental issues uh, when it comes to politics and, you know, where various uh, senators have received donations from and the uh, depth of uh, detail in lobby firms and their access. There's, there's plenty of stuff to do in terms of like deep dive research and at the bottom of that well, I think there are some pretty ridiculous information that is worth making fun of. Oh, you're going to be in business for a long time even if you just stick to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly this world will be a complete ball of fire before it stops being funny. Right. Absolutely. And, or, ho well, hopefully not. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and your show, obviously, I, I mean, nobody watches it who watches it fairly has any illusions. It's a comedy show. It's a comedy show. It's a comedy show. But yeah. in any respect, do you view it as at least sort of a journalistic one beyond just... No, in no respect. In no respect whatsoever. Yeah, no, I see it as a comedy show just about things that we're interested in. And so, yeah, we'll kind of look off the map a little bit, in, which will mean that we'll end up looking at Supreme Court cases and foreign elections and, you know, international issues just because they're interesting and people don't joke about them much. And there is, uh, uh, there's fun to be had there. But no, it's not journalism. It's, it's comedy. It's comedy first and it's comedy second. <laughs> and maybe something else third. Yeah, there might just be there might just be a serious a single serious point wrapped up in thirty five stupid jokes. Right, and the uh, but in doing so, uh, did you consult any journalists or bring any journalists aboard in your vast team? I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that you consulted or somebody on your team consulted with Shane Harris, who I believe works at Foreign Policy Magazine. Oh yeah, uh, what would that that would be? Or that might have been for the General Alexander interview. Yeah, I mean we have um, uh, we have a fact checker, a guy who used to work at the uh, New York Times Magazine. Yeah, we have a, a fact checker. Oh, what's his name? One, uh, Chuck Wilson, Charles Wilson. Um, and uh, yeah, it's good. It's very important. You know, you can't you can't make it, you can't build a joke on sand because otherwise then the joke doesn't work and the point falls of everything falls apart. So you've got to make sure, even though it's sometimes incredibly frustrating if you get excited about a joke angle and then you know your fact checker says yeah you can't say that right that <laughs> not right and it is it's a tough job and i remember when i was uh, talking to charles before he joined the show I was just saying you know it's it is the thankless position to have to walk into a room that has kind of a joyful momentum behind it oh yeah then we could do this then we could do this and be the one saying yeah you can't do any of that because it's not true, um, but it's important, you know. It's uh, so yeah. That, that's we we hold ourselves to, a, a, you know, a standard 
in terms of uh, facts. And yes, yeah, and so Charles, Charles with views from there, but otherwise, uh, yeah, Charles is, I guess, a journalistic fact checker, just to make sure that we're not joking about something that is not true. Right. And beyond him, the rest of it is just comedians, writers, producers, and... Yeah, you. but then we'll reach out, certainly, to, you know, again, through Charles, we'll reach out for extra information about things. Right. And have you done that uh, yet beyond Shane Harris? I'm not sure who we've been in contact with, because, again, that would kind of go through Charles if I was asking. I'm not sure mm-hmm. who else individually we've spoken to. I think it'll be a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, sounds yeah, good. That was, uh, I'm never, I'm, I've, to, at the moment, I've not been in direct contact. It's all gone, been through Charles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with your uh, history as, as a political satirist, have you, bring, have you brought on any of your old collaborators uh, to this show? Uh, um, people I've worked with in the past. Tim Carvel, I worked with at The Daily Show. Uh, he, he is, uh, he's executive producer of, of, uh, of this new show. Right. Yeah. And uh, tell me how your uh, team of writers and producers and video editors and everything, how describe to me the blitz of at HBO from going week to week to create one solid half hour product. Like what is, I, I guess, what is it like from someone who has no well, idea? Well, the truth is I don't really know room. at the moment because, again, we've only done it three times. So, uh, you know, the process is changing week to week. We're still not at a process that is, you know, as effective as it should be. So, yeah, we're having to make so many changes to how we get to that point on Sunday and what that thing on Sunday is going to be that, um, you know, I'm not sure we entirely know what the show is yet or how we should be making it. Um, Now, with that said, you know, what we have at the moment is just a, you know, a sequence of preparing interstitial bits that are where you can think a little longer term that are not necessarily of the week but but that are of the world uh and then trying to look ahead for again with the example i can only give you like examples from three shows so you know we knew that supreme court decision on uh coca-cola versus pom wonderful was coming in so we knew we could do a deep dive of research on food labeling and uh, the fda uh we knew we could get ahead of ourselves to give that, you know, a bit of depth, but it kind of depends at the moment, story to story, how we're treating it. We're not in a, we're not in a rhythm. We're in kind of survival mode. It's controlled drowning at the moment. (laughs) Uh, I know there might not be an answer to this yet, but in your mind, even though right now it's at a point of controlled drowning, (laughs) where, yeah. Where would you want it to be in, in the in like let's say you're still doing this show after six months or twelve months or yeah. two years? What 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 in your head is coming out of this in the near future? I don't know. I mean that's part of the problem. It, it's you know I I don't I don't know what we it, it's at the moment we have built a machine that is it and you, we're still having to find out what it can do knowing that it's not going to be working at its top capacity yet so it's it's hard to say because you know the the the, what you see on screen is the really just the end result of what has happened during the week and so we just need to make sure that what goes on that you don't see is working in 
you know, and, and as efficient a way as possible and the departments are working together and the communication is, it's, it's all, it's very difficult setting this stuff up from scratch. So this is, unfortunately, this is an answer which is inherently useless <laughs> unless you work in that building. But I guess that what I'm just trying to say is it's, we're not in a position where that is an answerable question at the moment because we haven't done anything. You know, we've only done three shows, which is nothing. So we're still working everything out. That is the kind of the exciting and the terrifying thing. Well, as long as it's fun. It's definitely fun. It's frightening and fun. Yeah. Well, that's the only way to do it. Anyway, uh, yeah. John, you've been very generous with your time, and thank you so much for chatting with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was really good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. So, clearly, Swin, this was hilarious. And, I mean, Oliver, as he talks to you, is pretty much the same guy that he is on the show. So he's not a different character on the show. He's himself. Is that right? He certainly right. seemed like him, the same guy that makes me laugh on TV. Perhaps more relaxed. Yeah. But other than that, uh, yeah, pretty much. Okay. I, and, and he comes off as a really nice guy. Again, <laughs> what, what do I know? I spoke to him once for, like, 24 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's nice if your real personality is actually that good. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, he seems like the kind of guy you totally want to have a beer with. Or or something heavier, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and and all I can say is cheers to more mockery of people who deny science. Uh it is hilarious in a tragic way that it happens so often, and I'm glad we've got him there to send it up. Yeah, and cheers in general for another show on a major television network that highlights science. Yes, absolutely. Hallelujah. And he assures us there's more to come. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank all of you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and I want to thank our guest host, Aswin Soupsang. Thanks so much for having me. It's been real. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org, and you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Please remember that today's podcast is sponsored by the Union of Concerned Scientists, who are the authors of the new book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. It's written by two nuclear power experts and an award-winning journalist, and it's a definitive scientific retelling of what happened at Fukushima, as well as an urgent reminder that U.S. nuclear power is not as safe as it could or should be. So to learn more about the book that the Los Angeles Times is calling indispensable, go on over to this URL, ucsusa.org slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. 